but competition with the Colombian soccer team for <laughs> celebrating Paul, the, the outrageous um, things that are going on in this country right now, and, and, um, and to kind of then bring you back to a presentation, it feels a little bit intimidating, but I'm really happy to be here, and it's really great to celebrate you, Paul. Let me just kind of figure out how to get my presentation on. So, so it's going to be this one. This one, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, right there. Got it. Terrific. Okay, so um, yeah, this is you know I have to say I really would rather I would have liked to spend five or ten or fifteen minutes telling you more things about Paul, but I'm not going to have any time to do my presentation. So let me just kind of briefly say that. Um, if there's one theme, one kind of personal theme, a scientific theme about how early experiences have an influence that kind of lasts over a lifetime, you know, I think I really have very special uh, feelings and insights into my early experience of sharing an office with Paul uh, at the beginning of our careers. And, and I do want to really kind of celebrate this coming full circle because um, we did begin together, and we were kids. And uh, although Paul had already published papers as a medical student, he was the co-author on the two. He and I, you know, wrote the two papers together. That were the first papers that I ever wrote. So, I tip my hat to you, Paul. I'm just kind of sorry that I don't have more time to say more about how special you are and how much our relationship has meant to me. But you guys know all that because you had the pleasure of having Paul as your chair for those years. Um, so, um, what I'm going to do this morning and I was hoping we'd have some time for Q&A, but I, I know if we will. But I'm going I'm to kind of try to speed through this to give you a sense of, of what um, our thinking is, um, myself and the people I work with and people around the country, about how we could use this revolution in biology that we're living through right now, that's certainly transforming tertiary care medicine, um, to once and for all take another crack at uh, transforming pediatric primary care. I have to say, there's, there, there, are, there are a lot of things that aren't so great about um, getting um, more advanced in your career, but one of the things that's really cool is that you really do understand how a lot of the stuff that people are discovering and getting excited about are the same things that you were excited about and discovering when you were beginning and thinking about how the people who you look to as your kind of uh, mentors probably kind of chuckled inside and said, well, yeah, this isn't so new. So the, the idea that we need to transform pediatric primary care is not a new idea. And a lot of the basic concepts um, haven't really changed. And the problem has been implementation. The problem has been actually executing rather than just visualizing. Um, but with one exception, which is the revolution in science right now, which is really more than just um, giving support for the fact that early is important, um, but to use the science to kind of say, what could we be do differently from what we've been doing for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and more? So I'm going to begin kind of really give you a very fast whirlwind tour of a half a century of early childhood policy and practice in this country, back before Paul and I were even, you know, kind of out of diapers. Um, and then kind of think about where do we go from here. So the framework for how we think about early childhood policy and practice, um, going way back to actually to the war on poverty and the great society programs in the 1960s, which is kind of like becoming ancient history, that basic framework is still pretty sound. 
um, but it has some important limitations in terms of what it's done. And it looks something like this. And some of this was really developed by the geniuses of uh, Julie Richmond and Ed Ziegler and Bob Haggerty and all of the people who began Head Start and began community health centers. All of these things were kind of invented in the 1960s. So the, the concept then and the concept now is some combination of providing information and education for parents about early childhood, enriched learning opportunities both at home and in centers, good sources of, of, of sound, primary health care, good nutrition, health-promoting environments, and community empowerment, all of these things, not a single one of them a new idea, that some combination of this will result in children coming to school ready to learn. Um, the health, the long-term health implications weren't that uh, prominent when this field began. It was mostly about do the kids have a source of health care? Can we get them dental care? Are their immunizations up to date? Have we screened their vision and hearing? Um, and the problem, and most of this, not all of this is provided by government programs, and not all of it is provided in organized fashion. A lot of it is what parents and families access themselves and what communities provide for the people who live there. But there's this kind of nagging problem that doesn't go away. Is that for some part of the population, this isn't enough. And that it tends disproportionately to be a part of the population that is dealing with significant diversity related to the usual suspects. Poverty, racism, violence, maltreatment, maternal depression. You know, the, the, this, the, the list is, is pretty consistent. We learn more about each of these things. But the concept here is that the reason why we have a part of the population that's not randomly distributed coming to school not prepared to succeed is this is a hypothesis now that the level of adversity in the lives of these children and their families overwhelms all of these things that we know uh, should be producing a good outcome. And again, the, 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 if there's one core message I want you to take away, although generally I think about three things, and I have a couple of things that are involved in threes. Well. Um, but the one message I want you to take away is that um, the time has ended for us to use science to just make the case for why early is important. That case has been made over and over again. It's time to use science to ask the question of what are we going to do differently? How are we going to be more effective? Not just to say we know what to do, we just don't get all of the money we need. Nobody gets all the money they need. And if only we had all the money, we'd solve these problems. No, that's not true. So um, let me kind of share with you some data from a meta-analytics study that that um, a group from our center conducted um, um, several years ago. It took about three years to code data from every single published study and published report over a 47-year period from the late 1960s up to 2013. Actually, 2009 was the, the end of the data collection we looked at. and said, what have we learned from 50 years of, of evaluating center-based early childhood programs? And what we learned is we proved over and over again that we can shift the needle. So the proof of concept is clear. But the effects, particularly at scale, have been modest. So here's what that whole early childhood field looks like up till about six years ago. We have our two shining demonstration projects, Perry Preschool and the Abyssidarian Project. There is not another drop of blood that can be squeezed out of the Perry Preschool data set. I mean, I, it's like we, Perry Preschool with 40-year follow-up on a randomized trial of 112 kids, half of them got the intervention, half didn't. And there's a lot to say about Perry, which I don't have time to talk about now. But that was a preschool program for three and four-year-olds, and Abyssidarian was a program that began in infancy. Um, these and these well-conducted randomized trials had a, 
an effect size of about 1.2, between 1 and 1.2 standard deviation impact. And everything we've done since then has kind of looked like this. So you see the zero line is no impact. Um, the blue circles are, the, head, the red circles are hit start evaluations, the blue are other early childhood programs. The bigger the bubble, the bigger the sample size. The message is, for half a century, you've shown over and over again we can move the needle. We don't have to ask the question of whether early programs make a difference. But as we've gone to scale bigger programs and over time, we've not come remotely close to replicating the peri and the abecedarian effects. The effects have been more modest. Um, and, and you see the trend line, the kind of mean effect. I mean, it's going down, but basically it's a very conservative estimate because in the early days the treatment group got nothing. Today, if you're in a study, you're randomized to get nothing, you get something else. So this is actually a very conservative estimate. So there's no reason to be discouraged here. Um, but um, one thing that's clear is we have problems taking things to scale. I mean, we can do things in a demonstration project, but we have a hard time taking them to scale. Ms. Field, hold this image in your mind of this. Let's think of this as a relatively flat slope over 50 years, consistent kind of small to moderate statistically significant effects from early care and education. Keep this line in your head for two or three slides later. That's going to show you something important. So now I'm going to come much closer to pediatric primary care. This is a study that was published in pediatrics just six months ago, um, back in December, um, by Peacock Chambers and colleagues, um, looking at the last two decades of interventions for children from birth to three in the pediatric primary care setting. What do we know? This isn't a meta-analysis, but it was a fairly well done, actually considerably well done, kind of discursive literature review. And this is what they found. What they found is of the you know, hundreds and hundreds of papers that were reviewed, um, there were 48 studies that met reasonable criteria for methodological rigor. Um, many of them are randomized trials and um, high-quality quasi-experimental studies. Of those 48 studies, 48 papers, they represented 24 different interventions that had been used in the pediatric primary care setting. So in some cases, there was only one study of an intervention. In a few, there were actually four studies of an intervention. So what did we find from two decades of what's been done and published in the primary care setting? Um, I want this to be energizing for you, not demoralizing for you. This is energizing. This is, for those of you who are interested in this field, it's not too late to come in and really make a difference. Because here's what the literature shows. So of these 24 studies, six of them demonstrated reduction in behavioral problems. Four of them demonstrated improved cognitive development in children. And two of them showed a reduction in developmental delays. 20 of the 24 showed significant parent outcomes, largely in terms of parenting behaviors, parents reporting reading to their kids more, feeling more comfortable and knowledgeable about child development, um, and more of a sense of, of psychological well-being in terms of I feel like I, um, as a result of this program, know more about how to provide what my child needs. Um, so these evidence-based studies, um, what's clear is um, evidence-based includes any of a variety of, of outcomes. I will tell you, I went and actually checked the federal um, standards for an evidence-based program. Everybody have your seatbelt on? The definition of an evidence-based program officially is any program that either in an experimental or a reasonably well-conducted non-experimental study 
at one time has produced one statistically significant impact on one child outcome or something else of relevant and if of relevance and if you can demonstrate one statistically significant impact on anything you are an evidence-based program so every time you hear people talk about evidence-based programs keep that in mind I'm, please understand I I have lived in this field my entire professional career I love this field I believe so even that doesn't matter what I believe the science is overwhelming that what happens early influences later outcomes so this is not a question of whether we should be doing this but for those of us who care about young children whether they are ripped from their parents at the borders or whether they are living in very stable home environments dealing with a lot of adversity if we care about these children and we care about our field we should be lovingly constructively dissatisfied with what we are accomplishing in this field and see this as a sign of strength this field for years could not say that because there was an existential threat that people would just kind of take the money away but start to identify with cancer researchers who are working on cancers that we have made little impact on right? there's nobody saying why are we continuing to spend money on pancreatic cancer research it has such a high mortality rate it's like it is a challenge to overcome that we need to keep that bar high and so but what the, and this is not me this is the authors of this paper who said a different child outcome measure was used in almost every study there was no consistent use of the same measurement of child outcomes and the heterogeneity of the results was so large that it was hard to actually figure out the difference between an effective and a non-effective intervention okay so this is this is also the legacy of the early days of the early childhood field where policymakers and those who did not want to provide supports for poor families were kind of out to kind of close things down so people learn remember everything is adaptive that's what biology is about brain development is adaptive metabolic regulatory systems are adaptive policymakers and clinicians and people running programs are adaptive and the adaptive response to that hostile environment is to measure as much in many things as you could and find something to declare victory on and write your progress report right everybody who's ever gotten more than one grant knows how to do that taking a risk here by saying this publicly is because I feel so close to Paul so I feel like I'm with friends and I know that this is going to be a podcast so here I am I'm basically saying this field is too rich and too precious to settle for kind of modest impacts we should be raising the bar so that brings us to the, the story of acute lymphoblastic leukemia what the heck does ALL have to do with programs for kids living in poverty and facing violence and racism so here's I am not equating ALL with um, social adversities but there's a very powerful message that I actually been using for a while and I learned from a pediatric oncologist in the last few months like I found the smoking gun about why this is the model for breakthrough outcomes for our field. So in 1964, a year before Head Start began, the five-year survival rate for ALL was about 3%. It was a uniformly fatal disease. Ten years later, the five-year survival rate was 60%. Today, the five-year survival rate is over 90%. So we can look at it and say, well, here's a field that doesn't declare victory when it has a statistically significant difference even if it's modest and if we went from 3% survival to 60% we would declare victory and this field did not this field even today it's like so when everybody survives it's like how do we reduce the toxic toxicity of the treatment okay how do we how do we think about potential long-term outcomes 
But here's the smoking gun. <laughs> this is, I mean, if you take nothing away from my presentation this morning, keep this riveted in your mind. So hang on. So this movement from 60% to more than 90% over a 30-year period has been accompanied by no new discoveries of any new treatment for ALL. Not one. Anybody want to guess what it was? I take a time I will tell you. It's stratification of risk. What people learned was of the multiple treatments they had, they realized that if they could match different treatments to different subtypes of leukemia based on the genetics of the disease or the genetics of the kids or other factors, with no new treatments, you went from 60% to 90%. Um, no one-size-fits-all. If there are, I don't know the exact number, but if there are half a dozen different treatments for ALL, and the best and the ones that work have to be matched, the difference in kids, what are we thinking when we ask, what's the best program for kids in poverty? What's the best program for families who are dealing with the burdens and the threats of racism and violence? What's the best program? So this is the key. This is the key to moving forward. It's stratification. It's understanding differential susceptibility, differential response to intervention. And that's where 21st century biology becomes, I think, the critical part of the future of early childhood programs. So we are living through a, a revolution in neuroscience, epigenetics, other dimensions of molecular biology. They're opening up the black box of the social determinants of health and development. There's nothing new. I can't believe there are still papers being published whose findings are that kids who were poor didn't do as well as kids in well-resourced well families on outcome ABC. I mean, we know that. And we also know it's true in every country in the world. So it's not just whether you have access to health care. It's about other things that affect differential outcomes. So the standard public and a lot of professionals in terms of an understanding about what is it about social determinants. There's some sense that there's some combination of effects of stressors, we call them risk factors, influence of parents, genetics, that must have something to do with it, supports, we call them protective factors, all of these things go together and there's some kind of black box phenomenon. Out from the other side come some kids with strong skills, healthy behavior, and they're physically and mentally well and other kids who fail in school, have risky behaviors, develop chronic illnesses more often, and live shorter lifespans. And what science is doing, it is opening up that black box. And it, what it's telling us first off is this is not an additive effect. You can't just add up risk factors and protective factors and keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. This, they're highly interrelated. You know, nature versus nurture was a 20th century question in science. The inextricable interaction between nature and nurture is 21st century science. Gene expression is affected by environmental influences and experiences. You can't separate those. And we even now understand, are understanding this at the molecular level. The addition of one methyl group to some part of one piece of the epigenome affects your response to stress later. And the addition of that methyl group is a function of what kind of experiences you have at a critical period early in life. It's that elegant, and we need to start using that to start to think about how should we be doing primary care differently. Pediatrics is so centrally located in the early childhood system to do more than just well-child visits, screening, and immunizations. That's the challenge. So um, three, we, we've kind of extracted from all of this science, because you, have, you can't just say it's all very complicated. That's part of the problem. 
The public perception about why it's so hard to break the cycle related to poverty and racism and violence of intergenerational transmission is because academics, whenever asked about it, say, well, it's very complicated. There's no simple answer. You know, that's, it doesn't help because people actually know it's complicated. In fact, that leads most people to feel a sense of futility about how to break these intergenerational patterns because it's complicated. So one of the things we work really hard on is to take very complicated science, not dummy it down, but say, could we consolidate into into basic principles of how we should be thinking about policies and programs, either to make them better, to kind of change them in some ways, or maybe to do something different, okay? And the three design principles that clearly come out of all of this science that I'm just referring to and certainly don't have time to get into in depth, are three basic principles. <laughs> in the light of, of Professor Salazar's comment about the border, you know, here, so people are asking me right now, what, what kind of program should we put in place for the kids who are facing all this adversity? And to me, that question of putting programs in place for those kids is an obscenity. It's kind of missing the point. The program, the intervention is reunite them with their parents. That's the, not bringing all kinds of people to kind of help them cope with what is a preventable perpetration. It's different from, we, we don't have an easy answer to poverty or violence, but we have, an even answer, we have an easy answer to, what about kids who are taken away from their parents? Put them back. Okay? And even in the child welfare system, where sometimes children are removed from the home, enlightened child welfare now is working hard at maintaining those relationships, even in the absence of custody, as much as possible. So building responsive relationships, every program, every practice, every intervention, every policy could start by asking one, how are we building and strengthening responsive relationships? How are we strengthening core life skills, which begin early in the early childhood period around basic executive function and self-regulation skills that are part of everybody's favorite topic, which is how do we build resilience? We don't build resilience by telling kids to toughen it up and suck it up and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We build it by, we strengthen resilience by building and strengthening the building blocks of self-regulation and the ability to focus attention and the ability to control impulses and the ability to engage in goal-directed behavior. That starts very early. Also, these skills, for adults who don't have them, they can be built. It's harder. They're not built by giving an instruction sheet on how to raise kids. They're built by coaching and practice. They can be built later. And the third is reducing external sources of stress. Those three, very simple and obviously highly interrelated, those three basically provide us with a roadmap and a blueprint of how we can promote healthy development and educational achievement in children and responsive caregiving and ultimately economic stability for families. When we were starting early on thinking about these in terms of parenting scale programs, someone in the room said, these skills you're talking about for parenting sound to me like the skills you need to get a job. And that if you're going to call these parenting programs, you also want to call them workforce development programs because these are the core capabilities you need to provide a well-regulated caregiving environment, to be able to engage in meaningful employment and to be economically self-sufficient and to be a contributing member of the community, the ability to engage in goal-directed behavior, to kind of come up with plans to deal with things, move to plan B if plan E isn't working, all of those executive function and self-regulation skills. So what I want to do now is, is very quickly move toward um, giving you a little bit of a sense of where the excitement is in the at the frontiers of neuroscience and molecular biology. 
And what does that have to do with early childhood policy and programs generally? And more specifically, what does that have to do with pediatric practice? Okay. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot going on in biology right now. Um, you've got a lot of it here at, at the medical center here. There are medical centers all over the country and the world, and including university settings where there's no connection to a healthcare setting. But there are three areas that are particularly um, fertile for um, kind of influence on kind of what we do in pediatrics and also that are moving very quickly. So the first is new insights about plasticity and critical periods in the development of the brain and the immune system and the interaction between the brain and the immune system. It's incredibly complex and exciting, but something we, we're in a much better position now to say earlier is better than later. That's, a, that's correct, but it's, we can be more precise about that. And also recognize we're in a policy environment that for, you know, for very carefully thought through strategic reasons decided the most effective way to get the public to invest earlier than school is universal pre-K. That, that was a policy, strategic, political decision. Um, I wouldn't argue with it. Age four is earlier than age five, getting started before kindergarten. That speed onward, but you can't use neuroscience and molecular biology to make the case that that's early. That's it's not too late, but it's so far from early when it comes to the development of the brain and the immune system and metabolic systems that are kind of creating um, adaptive patterns in response to the environment. And it's no longer uh, good enough to start at birth because prenatal research is exploding in terms of the impact of of the environment. And not just excessive stress, and not just what we've always known in pediatrics about kind of toxins in the environment, but the degree to which, this was a meeting last week, what's going on in the placenta and what is going on in the gene environment relationship between the mother's health at the time she becomes pregnant and the development of the embryo and the fetus is breathtaking. And so even we should also, I would love one other take-home message. Like, could everybody here stop using the word zero when you talk about, if you talk about zero to three, zero to five, stop talking about it because most of the time people mean birth and that is scientifically like so wrong to say it starts at birth. And if you say, it's, if you, by zero you mean conception, I don't know, that's it's a kind of politically tough stuff. So don't use zero anymore. Talk about from, if you want to talk about birth, talk about birth to two, birth to three, birth to five. If you want to talk about early, talk about prenatal to three or five. You can say conception, whatever you want, but let's get rid of zero. Zero is not only scientifically wrong, it's meaningless and it's misleading. So I'm going to give you one example in a minute about the plasticity and critical period issue um, because here's, here's a good take-home line for you. There's work being done on the development of the brain. What's the one thing we learn about critical periods is the critical period for the development of binocular vision. By a certain age, if you don't correct an amblyopia, you will have you will have cortical blindness in an anatomically normal eye. Guess what? It's not irreversible. There's a lot of animal research and some human studies that are beginning just now to show that you can actually restore vision in a cortically blind animal um, pharmacologically. And the reason for that is because the critical period, which got a Nobel Prize for Hubel and Wiesel, I don't know how many years ago, there was an assumption that something permanent happened in the occipital lobes and you couldn't change it, something structural. It's actually not true. Um, critical periods are opened and closed by what are now referred to as uh, molecular breaks. 
that are kind of molecular mechanisms that either initiate or then halt the plasticity of a critical period based on balance between inhibitory and, and, uh, and um, excitatory and inhibitory mechanisms, um, you can actually release the molecular breaks and reopen a critical period for vision. Well, that's a treatment that we'll kind of have at some point. But for those of you who think, wow, this is so cool, if we could open all these critical periods, think of what we could do. No, no good, because there obviously is a reason why we have these critical periods, and opening them up could potentially lead to all kinds of unintended consequences. But the point is, plasticity in critical periods is a hot issue right now in basic research. I think the one that's most important for us is research on how stress affects individuals differently. Um, there is differential susceptibility to context. Now, Tom Boyce has done a lot of work on this. Some children are genetically more sensitive to the environment. This is the orchids and dandelions stuff, for some of you who know that. Some kids are so sensitive that in a, in a really tough environment, they collapse. And in a really good environment, they are the most creative, productive people we know. That's probably why it, it, it persisted. I was conserved through evolution. Um, uh, but it's not, you can't think about programs in terms of what's the best program for kids in X, because there's differential response, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. So think precision medicine. Think about how we can use the science driving that if there's no one treatment for something. How do we understand and then think about how to support and intervene when necessary children who are living in the same circumstances and who respond differently. And um, when science and common sense come together, it's a grand slam home run. Every parent who has more than one child understands that children are different and that they, they respond to things differently. The third, which is particularly relevant for, I, I hope and I think, where pediatrics can like, rise to the top in a very critical role in the early childhood world, is the emerging availability of biomarkers of stress and resilience in young children that are modifiable by interventions. We have not had in very young children a way to actually measure this differential sensitivity to adversity. We haven't had a way to measure response to interventions in very young children other than waiting until they start talking and promising people that they'll do better on a school readiness test for three, four, five years later. So um, I'm going to give you an example of some of the measurement development that we're working on. It could transform pediatric practice. Think if you had, in addition to screening for lead and screening for anemia, you could screen reliably for stress effects in children early on and have that information not as a diagnosis but as a sign of something you can now, um, in a targeted way, do something about in partnership with parents about kind of how do we deal with this as opposed to making an inappropriate labeling diagnosis, which would be terrible. Um, so let me give you some, just a couple of simple examples of this. On the, on the plasticity side, so these are data taken from a rodent study, kind of looking at the development of the fear circuitry in the immature brain, which is basically the connectivity between the amygdala and higher orders uh, control centers in the prefrontal cortex. The circuitry of, of, of the fear response has been well worked out in animals and kind of pretty much applies to humans. So in this particular study, um, this is representing the, the normal period of plasticity, increasing plasticity and then decreasing plasticity, the critical period for developing fear circuits. In the, in the face of maternal separation, ironic, okay, here we are. But, you know, every time people say, can you give me a study? Like the answer is there are hundreds and hundreds of studies over decades. There is no one study. They all say the same thing. But here's at the molecular, at the biological level. 
So separating baby rodents from their mothers and then looking at the, the critical periods for the fear circuitry development, it shifts it to the left. The critical period op opens earlier and closes sooner. Um, and there's a reason for that you can think from an evolutionary perspective that in the face of threat, remember all evolution, evolutionary biology cares about is for you to stay alive long enough to reproduce. It doesn't care about how you do in school. It doesn't care about how you fulfill your life. The, the role of biology is to stay alive long enough to keep the species from going extinct. So it makes sense that in the face of adversity, everything is speeded up biologically to get you to maturity and to get you to reproductive capacity as fast as possible. It's why you often see uh, precocious puberty in the face of significant adversity. So critical periods are not fixed. They can be shifted as a result of adversity. And generally, the message is when they're shifted, it means the window is even tighter, suggesting earlier. So, so bravo for let's mobilize all our resources and start at age four to kind of help kids who have been facing adversity from before birth. Um, this, is my, this is the one that I really want most for you to take away. This is we are um, so much of our thinking is driven by um, SES gradients or social class or education gradients or parent education gradients, because every time you study these gradients, no matter what you look at, you get the same predictable curve. Sometimes it's steeper, sometimes the slope is less, but no matter what you study in health, development, learning, behavior, the best things that are going on in the life, the more likely you are not as well. So here they are for, this was a study that Kim Noble did, so it had you know, language and, and visuospatial skills and memory and a whole bunch of other things, and here they are. Um, and that's what we talk about. That's not the story. That's 20th century science. Here's 21st century science. It's the scatter around the average. It's the deviations from the mean. It's the fact that at any, no matter what you look at, if you're looking at social class or parent education or anything else, there are kids in poor families who do better than kids in wealthy families. And there are kids in families with, low with high education who don't do as well as kids in families in low education. On average, on a population basis, these things hold. But on an individual basis, they don't. And pediatrics and primary care doesn't deal with populations. It deals with children and families. So using these population measures, including, if I may say so humbly, um, those of you who are captivated, we mentioned the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. A uh, very important study, and in fact, it was middle-class people, and it was retrospective study with those limitations, but it, it's, it's significant. But for those of you who are caught by this idea that if we do ACE scores on individual children and families and have a child with a high ACE score, that we tell the parent and think in terms of this child is now three times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have strokes, six times more likely to have chronic lung disease. I'm making those numbers up, but you get the point. That's wrong. That is absolutely not true for that child. That's population-level data, so be really careful about the ACE ratings. And the, third, the message is very powerful, but the number is often misused. ACEs was a study done in the 1990s. Paul and I were in medical school and in residency before the 1990s. We learned how to do a social history and a family history, and we learned that these things matter. So the ACEs study just kind of put a number on this stuff, but it's not its population data. It's not about individuals. It's not a good tool for pediatricians to decide what to do for a specific child who's in the office at that moment. Um, 
so here I'm going to summarize something I said earlier in my presentation. If we want to achieve greater impact and scale, which is our job, if we, if we have a demonstration project that blows things out of the water and does something that no program has ever done and we can't replicate it, there's a lot of work left to be done. This is not about demonstration projects anymore. This is about impact of scale. We're going to have to rethink the definition of an evidence-based program. You remember, I told you what the definition is. So right now, the way it works, you know, the red horizontal line is no. This is a kind of made-up study. Zero, the red line, everything above the red line at the positive impact, every below, every item below is a negative impact. Right now, you do the calculations, you throw all the data in the computer, you see what comes out if you find one thing that was significant, and the mean effect between the treatment and control group reaches statistical significance, you're an evidence-based program. That, ha that, is, that is a brick wall that we have to get over. What we have to start doing, having science guide us, is to start asking, why did this intervention work so well for these children and families? Why did it work so poorly for these children and families? If we start to figure that out, when we figure out for whom it's working, we can start scaling for the kids and families when it's working. And we should not do that for the kids and families who isn't working, but we should go back to the drawing board and figure out how to develop more effective interventions, thinking about these three principles. How do we strengthen relationships in this family? How do we reduce sources of stress? How are we building the kinds of skills that will produce better outcomes? The end, like the treatment of ALL, is a suite of programs and policies, not long treatment, across sectors. Some of it will be in health, some will be in education, some will be in human services, matching different strategies to different resources, needs, and resources. Think help me grow. <laughs> okay, think about the need for a system that will help us do that, not a lone practitioner or a single program trying to defend you know, how people should come to it rather than something else. Um, so we have a, a network funded by the JPB Foundation that as its, as its primary objective is to develop new biological and behavioral measures of stress effects in kids. It's a, it's a dream team of scientists. We have a network of practices across the country. I want to just, you know, give you a little teaser about kind of the, what's, what's on the horizon. I think it's not more than a couple of years away of new measures of stress and resilience that actually are being designed for use in the primary care setting. Um, so um, EEG capability is actually pretty simple right now with these simple nets and all the machines are expensive. But, and that technology is moving fast. Being able to do EEG is as part of an office routine. Maybe a little excessive for some people, but the technology is there. Um, there are tablet-based um, um, measures of attention that are working as early as two to four months of age. Um, pictures that come across a screen, you put the child in front of it, how quickly a child focuses on the images, follows them, how quickly the child notices that they change. The camera built in there and the machinery inside the computer will tell you, be able to actually measure differential attention, focused attention, sustained attention in a two to three minute assessment in an office practice. I mean, this is, this is not just about apps, right? There's unbelievable technology that's kind of on the horizon. Um, and um, we, we, we'll have more things to do than just stacking blocks and putting cubes in a cup, I promise. Um, and also, um, there's an interesting thing. This is the one I'm going to show you. F-isoprostane uh, is a measure of oxidative stress. It's been, has a huge literature in adults. It's never really been done much in kids and never been done in, in preschool and infants before. And we're um, testing, and we've actually, we went through a feasibility study. You can actually get urine, including what you can squeeze from a diaper to be able to measure isoprostane in the urine 
babies as early as two months of age. Isoprostate is a total body measure of oxidative stress at the cellular level. So here's the teaser. These are preliminary data based on small numbers, but it's, it shows a little bit of the possibilities. So think about getting a tiny bit of urine in a practice. Um, with or without doing an EEG because we've already been demonstrated. So here are some preliminary findings. More stresses in the family, as reported by the mother, more stressful events, was associated with lower levels of EEG power at age two months in babies, differentially. There's the slope. Again, note the variability, right? So it's not everybody, but on average, this we may have a measure of not just like how many stress events is the mother reporting in her life and think about which families are at greater or higher risk. Which, what's the differential sensitivity of the children within that family? And who is showing signs already at two months of age of an elevated stress response that could be the basis, not of a diagnosis and a hospitalization, but to kind of say, so let's, let's get on top of this. Let's look at what we can do in terms of how to buffer the child from the stresses in the environment, how to strengthen parents' skills to kind of buffer the child and build resilience in the child. Um, the measure of isoprostane at two months of age is, is, is been in small numbers. It's actually a very strong predictor on average of decreasing, of a slower increase in, in gamma power in the EG from two to six months of age. Again, don't focus so much on the details here, but in fact, there are things we can measure in babies that will tell us differential sensitivity to stress that at an early point when there's no reason to think any kind of permanent damage is being done, that we can do something to kind of strengthen the buffering for that child and at the same time be able to reassure parents who are in very stressful circumstances that yes, this is very hard, but their children are actually showing resilience or their children are showing sensitivity to this and we can do something about it. This is kind of pediatrics of the future, not just advice on sleeping and temper tantrums. This is brain science. Yeah. So I'm going to end with um, a sense of how um, the future for changing pediatric practice needs a top-down and a bottom-up approach. So that we start with the science is overwhelming that the relation between toxic stress in childhood and physical and mental health in adults is strong. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, but the risks and probabilities are clear. It's also clear that we need to start addressing the roots of lifelong health in the early childhood period. It's hard to know how long it will take internal medicine to, to jump on board on this, but I will tell you we have a partnership uh, we're building now with Mass General Hospital that's supported not only by the pediatrics department, by the chief of internal medicine, who believes that this is a really important thing for medicine to start paying attention to. For those of you who are at the beginning of your career, for those of you who are residents or medical students, you will live through the transformation of medicine. It is not just about precision medicine for tertiary care disease, but bringing this science into health promotion and disease prevention. And stop thinking that the key to early health promotion is to get 30 and 40-year-olds to stop smoking and start exercising more. That's not early health promotion. Um, so the bottom-up change has to come from those pioneering practices that want to be part of designing and evaluating and testing new interventions that are driven by greater precision. What is the intervention? How are we defining its, its um, efficacy? What's, what's our criterion for evidence? That, that will best start from the bottom up of who are the practices that kind of want to be part of creating the future and not be distracted by the policy discussions. Figure this out. Think the laboratories that are working on the basic science and the early stage testing of new drugs, uh, many of
which won't succeed, but that's the name of the game. They're doing it until they figure out what works. That's, that's the R&D dimension of the field. Um, and validated biomarkers of stress and resilience that are, that are on the horizon, they're not that far away. They will transform our ability to screen, not just by demographic factors, uh, but also by differences, things we can measure in the kids, and even more important, measure short-term intervention effects to feed into this question of what's working and what's not, and not waiting years. And if we want to talk about the impact on adult disease, there's nobody who's going to wait for the 60-year follow-up study to show you've had less heart disease. We need more proximal markers, and we know inflammation's a big part of atherosclerosis, and we know that insulin resistance is a big part of diabetes. So there are things that can be measured early that will give us clues. But it also needs a top-down approach. So medical education has to embrace 21st century science, residency training, health services research, and I'll, I'll end my presentation with where I began and pay special tribute to Paul, to Paul Dworkin and Help Me Grow, because system building can't just be about how do we do interagency agreements and how do we share data. It has to be based on an understanding of why we're connecting all these things and how we're going to figure out how to make them more effective. And for those, anytime you talk to people in the healthcare system about anything, the first question is, well, who's going to pay for this? And the second question usually is, how is this going to be paid for? And the third question usually is, I don't have any time to do anything new because nobody's paying me to do the things that I'm doing right now. So I would suggest that the ability to kind of measure change and to have biomarkers is going to be the best way to get third-party payers to pay for this stuff. So this is my take-home message for you. Buckminster Fuller was some very eccentric and brilliant creative um, Architect, among other things, and he said, among a lot of things he said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. We are eager to be working with um, Help Me Grow and the, the kind of the measurement stuff and the, the laboratories that we've been developing to basically think about not just tweaking around the edges, but how do we build a new model for primary care that actually makes the old model um, a precious and cherished um, predecessor to kind of what we're doing in the 21st century. This is our website for those of you who uh, might be interested. We have a lot of material on there that translates very complicated science for non-scientists to see kind of how we do that. And I'm sorry that I actually ran over a couple of minutes. Forgive me. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to honor Paul Jorkin.